As the shutdown forces us to hold our collective breaths, some exciting treatments are on the horizon. Hello, I'm Dr. Simon Midorsky, president and founder of Skin Cancer and Reconstructive Surgery Center, SCARS Center, and Appearance Center of Newport Beach. This is the third podcast in our series on coronavirus treatment and prevention. Normally, this would be dedicated to things that I love, which is skin cancer, plastic surgery, and all things appearance. But given the significance of what's going on in the world today, we're dedicating the next few podcasts to this very topical issue. So a lot of great news out there. Some of it is confusing. Some of it is hopeful. But let's just first remind ourselves why this whole complete shutdown is necessary or was necessary, hopefully soon enough. We need the time for our frontline healthcare providers and workers to be prepared for the onslaught of sick patients. I've had an interesting conversation with one of my colleagues who works in a community hospital in the emergency department. It's a medium-sized community hospital, and it has an emergency department, ICU, and operating rooms, and they all are lacking in personal protective equipment. Things like N95 masks and things like CAPR masks or PAPR masks. These stand for Controlled Air Purifying Respirator or Powered Air Purifying Respirator. These are protective measures that are needed to take care of very ill patients who are coughing and blowing out mucus filled with viral pathogens. It's needed to protect our frontline workers. If they become sick, we will lose them. The healthcare system will then collapse. So this is critical. This lull in the onslaught of patients gives hospitals and the healthcare system opportunity to get those personal protective equipment, to get those ventilators that are being produced by all sorts of companies, which is very exciting, and to create systems. One of the things you'll notice is outside of many hospitals, white tents are being put up. These are triage tents where sick patients could be separated from the healthy ones so that we don't infect everybody. The hospitals are trying to keep the sick patients from entering the common space of the hospital emergency room and rather escort them directly into the controlled environment of air-controlled rooms where healthcare providers are wearing these respirator masks. All right, now let's talk about some science by the numbers. So... 50% of people infected with coronavirus, COVID-19, will be asymptomatic, while the other 50% of the patients will develop symptoms. Majority of those will be benign symptoms and mild or moderate symptoms. However, half of the people with symptoms, or a little bit less than half, will develop severe symptoms requiring oxygen support and ICU care. So this is when the lung infections start to occur and other complications start to occur. So of those half of half who require ICU care, about some of them will actually require ventilator support. And that number is one in 10 of patients who are actually symptomatic. And it turns out to be 5% of symptomatic patients require ventilator support. So that's by the number. So half of us are going to be asymptomatic and they'll just weather this very easily. Half of the other half will have mild to moderate symptoms. We'll probably be able to wait it out at home, maybe with some oral medications. And of course, the quarter total of a quarter of us who will get infected will require some sort of hospital support because we are severe. The good news around the whole thing is that children who make up 2 to 6% of infected individuals do remarkably well. In studies that have been done so far throughout the world, children have mostly had mild symptoms almost nothing, very few of them required hospitalization 
and very few yet required any oxygen support. None have died. So that's wonderful news. Another interesting thing about science of viruses is their evolution. Now, in popular culture, we see viruses evolving into something ominous. First, they become mild, they escape the lab, and then they become more severe, and eventually they turn us all into zombies. Well, this virus is not, does not seem to be behaving that way. In fact, provinces outside of the epicenter of the infection, which is Wuhan, China, provinces outside of Wuhan, China, had found that their viral infections have less severity than those that have been found in Wuhan, China. Is the virus evolving to become less severe? It is possible. If you look at epidemiology of viruses and evolution of viruses, there's really evolutionary pressure for viruses to become less severe. Think of it this way. If a virus is really severe and the minute you get a single viral particle, two hours later you're dead, you don't have the opportunity to infect anyone. But if you're an asymptomatic spreader of the viral particles, you can infect a lot. So a virus cannot cause too much disease or it's not going to be able to spread. And the most successful viral subtypes that spread will be the ones that are milder because then we would not know that we have them and we're more likely to spread it. So there is pressure, evolutionary pressure on viruses to evolve into something less virulent. Studies of viral loads found also interesting patterns. First of all, we find out that people are starting to develop detectable viruses a few days before they even become symptomatic. The viral load peaks at four to, uh, I'm sorry, five to six days after start of the infection, which is of course the peak of infectiousness when you have a high viral load. In other words, the concentration of viruses in your bloodstream and mucus is extraordinarily high. The resolution of viral load and its disappearance after the start of symptoms is about 18 to 21 days, which means that after you become symptomatic from COVID-19, you're in quarantine for at least three weeks. Looking from public health perspective, the University of Washington School of Public Health on their website has, uh, has a link to these interesting graphs of the incidence of new cases of COVID-19 around the world and in different countries. Here you can see in yellow, if you're looking at our YouTube channel, you'll see in yellow the curve of the new infections in China. You can see it peaked and now it's diminishing, if we can believe those results. You can also see in the next graph the new case development in South Korea, also one of the early countries to get this infection. And you can see the, the new case incidences peaked and now the new cases are decreasing each day, which is very hopeful. And the last one is, of course, US, and you can see the curve going straight up. It's a function of the fact that the testing is finally getting rolled out and we're now discovering who truly had the virus. So we're a little bit behind the time in knowing who has it, but we expect this viral curve to go straight up at this point as we are doing more and more testing. Now, the most exciting part of this is the therapeutic interventions possible, the treatments for this virus. One of the most popular ones in the news has been remdesivir. This is a broad-spectrum antiviral medication originally developed for Ebola, and it affects the RNA viruses such as Ebola and coronavirus. Studies are mixed right now. They've shown that remdesivir decreases total viral load in patients throughout the treatment, but does not change the clinical course of the disease, which is disappointing. So what does that mean? Do they simply not start this drug early enough and maybe it was too late? 
to change the clinical course of the disease? In other words, so much damage has been done, it doesn't matter that you're decreasing the viral load that's already caused its damage. We don't know. The studies are on the way. We should have some preliminary results in about two to three weeks. The other common drug that's been used a lot has been an anti-HIV combination drugs called lopinavir and ritonavir, marketed under the name Coletra. The results are a little bit uncertain. There have been some positive results, some negative results. There are certainly some drugs that are more effective than that combination. Again, studies are ongoing on this to find out how effective it really is. Both remdesivir and this lopinavir-ritonavir combination have been also used with interferon, the common immune-stimulating drug that has been combined with them and had shown some promise in decreasing the infection with COVID-19. Now, the most popular drug out there right now is chloroquine, the antimalarial, and its less toxic cousin, the newer hydroxychloroquine, commonly sold in the United States as Plaquenil. It is marketed for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. It's quite effective in that. And it has been shown to actually be effective in COVID-19 infection. It's available in pill form, but a company is developing an aerosol version of that that could be inhaled right into the lungs and treat the virus at its source. There's been a run on this medication, so all the pharmacies are out. The two companies, Mylan and Teva Pharmaceuticals, are working feverishly to actually manufacture more of these medications, and they will be available for shipping March 31st with 10 million pills available by mid-April. The most important long-term objective is herd immunity. Either all of us get it and become immune and the virus simply dies out, or we develop a vaccine where we vaccinate everybody and we have antibodies in our bloodstream that will resist the virus and prevent it from infecting. And this way, the virus will die out. Well, unfortunately, vaccines are still a year away. National University of Singapore School of Public Health is one of the best websites for information on treatment and diagnostics. They, in one of their articles, have shown that there are 31 vaccines in development currently as we speak. Two of them are in phase one clinical trials, one in U.S. and one in China, and eight is in preclinical testing. If you're wondering, the difference is preclinical testing is trying to figure out if you can create an um, antibody or a medication in the mouse model or maybe in cultured cells. But phase one clinical testing, you're actually testing it on real humans to see if inoculating them with some sort of vaccine will produce antibodies. If you've shown that it does work, then you go to phase two clinical testing, checking for toxicity, and you go to phase three clinical testing that checks for efficacy. And it's a huge study usually. We're still about a year from actually some vaccine being available. Another very exciting part of treatment is something called convalescent plasma. This is plasma derived from individuals who've already been infected and have developed their own immunity, their own antibodies. So there are two ways to develop natural antibodies. Either we get a vaccine and develop it, or we get infected and we develop it. So convalescent plasma is derived from the individuals who have been infected and developed immunity. The plasma could be taken out of their uh, blood, purified, and contain all the antibodies that they've produced to the virus and can be infused into infected individuals. Historical fact about this is it's been used extensively throughout human history 
More notably, 1918, during the Spanish influenza epidemic, it was used successfully to limit the damage that Spanish influenza caused to people with this transfusion of the plasma. Also, it's been used very successfully in measles and Ebola and avian flu. This is called a polyclonal antibody treatment. And right now, there is one company in Japan called Takeda Pharmaceuticals that is developing their TAC, T-A-K, 888 plasma concentrate. It's ready for shipping. The problem with the convalescent plasma is logistics. Think about it. First, the donor has to agree to donate blood or plasma. The donor has to be tested to make sure they don't have any other infectious diseases. And then it has to be transported and given to the sick individuals. Hopefully, a lot of people will donate who've been sick, but logistics of this are difficult. So from polyclonal antibodies to monoclonal antibodies, it's one of the great evolutions of modern medicine over the last 20 years. Monoclonal antibodies are single antibody for a specific part of a protein or enzyme or a virus. So antiviral monoclonal antibodies. Regeneron is one of the giants in creation of monoclonal antibodies, and it's right now uh, has several monoclonal antibodies that are developing for COVID-19, and this testing will become will actually start, human testing will start by early summer, which is very exciting. And the way they created it is they used either the mouse model or the humans who've been infected and looked for antibodies to the coronavirus. They checked to see which of those multiple polyclonal antibodies are really highly effective against the viral replication. And they use that to manufacture and create a lot of these monoclonal antibodies. So it's just a purified antibody in billions or, or trillions of uh, particles that can be infused as a medication. Biogen and Vera Biotechnology are two other companies that are developing monoclonal antibody. The direct antiviral therapy against the virus has been developed for influenza extensively. And we know some of these medications, such as Tamiflu, at least in the United States, that we can take for influenza. Now, some of these medications can actually be used against the coronavirus. So a drug in China uh, has just been approved that is an anti-influenza drug developed by a Japanese company and approved in Asia for flu. Chinese testing has have actually shown that it's very effective against coronavirus and it's been approved in China for that use. The drug now is called favilavir and it was formerly known as favipiravir. It inhibits viral RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. It beat that anti-HIV drug combo, lopinavir and ritonavir, in efficacy studies. So this drug is something to look for. There are other anti-influenza drugs being tested, including the Tamiflu, or the generic name of that is Oseltamivir, and uh, we will find out if those are effective. The others being considered are actually anti-hepatitis antiviral medications. Another strategy for treatment of COVID-19 is inhibition of the most toxic part of COVID-19 infection and that is cytokine storm. Another name for cytokine storm is cytokine release syndrome. Now, cytokines are little chemicals that are released by our white blood cells, such as T cells or macrophages, when an infection occurs. In fact, these cytokines, once they are released in the setting of infection, stimulate other white blood cells of our immune system to stimulate more cytokines so that an infection can be controlled. These are highly toxic substances that create tremendous amount of inflammatory response and just rev up the immune system. Now, what happens if the virus activates cytokine release throughout their, our entire body? 
all the white cells simply purge their cytokines throughout. Well, this is devastating to the human body. This is how we develop SARS. This is severe acute respiratory syndrome. That's how we develop kidney failure and other organ failures, which is fatal in many cases. Strategy is to try to stop the cytokine storm or cytokine release syndrome. Now, for those of you that are science geeks, there's actually a, a specific name for that um, syndrome, and it's called secondary hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, HLH. A great article in Lancet actually describes this whole cytokine storm, and you can get the link to it from our show notes. Some of the cytokines, just for interest, are called interleukin-2, interleukin-6, interleukin-7, tumor necrosis factor, and many others. So there are monoclonal antibodies that are actually being developed to treat the cytokine storm. The most common cytokine that they're impacting is anti-interleukin-6 or interleukin-6. The antibody to it, uh, the monoclonal antibody is called tocilizumab, and it's traditionally used for rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Trials are underway in China to check for its efficacy. Another anti-IL-6 drug traditionally used for rheumatoid arthritis is a brand name Kevzara, and generic name is Sarilumab. Another uh, anti-IL-6 drug for rheumatoid arthritis is called Kevzara, but its generic name is Sarilumab. There are several other monoclonal antibodies, um, drugs against these cytokines. Uh, There's one against anti-IgG4, another one anti-CD3, and another one anti-JAK, J-A-K inhibitors. So there's a whole slew of drugs that is being tested against various cytokines to see if that deadly cytokine storm could be stopped in its tracks with these antibodies that bind to the cytokines and stop them from causing damage to the body. A very exciting other therapy has been an oral antibiotic called Zithromax. The generic name is Zithromycin, and that's the common ingredient in z which we have all used. This is part of a group of antibiotics called macrolides. The other two are clarithromycin, biaxin, and good old-fashioned erythromycin. What's fascinating about this, these drugs is they dampen cytokine release again, and they've been shown to be effective in respiratory viral infections. In my show notes, I have several links to some articles on that. High-dose vitamin C, surprisingly, is actually scientifically shown to suppress hyperactivation of immune effector cells, quote-unquote. So why not take some vitamin C while we're at it? Another interesting supplement is zinc. So zinc, not just any zinc, but zinc when it is inside our cells actually impairs replication of coronavirus. So we can take zinc lozenges, but how does it get inside of our cells so that our cells can resist replication of coronavirus and it causing such damage? Well, zinc is an ion that has to be transported across the cell membrane inside where it can serve a protective role. The substances that facilitate that transport of zinc from outside of the cell to the inside of the cell are called ionophores. And guess what one of the ionophores is? If you guessed it, you're brilliant. Chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, the medication used currently in trials for COVID-19 infection. 
So perhaps the mechanism of these drugs is actually as an ionophore to facilitate zinc entry from outside of the cell into the cell and therefore inhibit viral replication? We're yet to find out. But I thought that was a fascinating connection. There is another ionophore that facilitates entry of zinc into the cell, and it is called zinc pyrithione, commonly known as the active ingredient in head and shoulders. Now, wait a second. Before you go out there and start chugging head and shoulders, this is still experimental, it is purely theoretical, and please, it's not going to help you to chug head and shoulders. A controversy also arose around a common medication called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. We know ibuprofen, naproxen, under brand names of Motrin, Advil. Studies have shown that ibuprofen may increase, wait for it, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, ACE2, which is the receptor for the binding of coronaviruses. Okay, so if you take ibuprofen, your cells will have more of these little receptors, ACE2, to which coronavirus can bind. But does that make you sicker necessarily? We really don't know. Nobody really knows anything about that. But the current recommendation of World Health Organization and CDC is if you want to treat a fever and you suspect COVID-19, start with Tylenol. But ibuprofen is not really contraindicated either. A study to argue against that is a study I found in Journal of Antiviral Therapy from 2006. It actually found that indomethacin, an older NSAID, had shown efficacy against the first SARS coronavirus. So go figure, do NSAIDs help or do they hurt coronavirus? Science will tell us later. Now, let's talk about testing. Finally, it's here. More and more people are getting tested. In fact, as of March 23rd, 2020, of all the people tested in California, 12% were found positive. In New York, the number is substantially higher. Of all the people tested in New York, 27% are positive. Significantly different from our original numbers several weeks ago, where only 1% of people tested in the United States were positive for coronavirus. The testing has some very important parameters, and that is its sensitivity and specificity. A lot of you know what a false positive is. False positive is when you're tested for something and it says that you have it, but in reality, you don't. Well, what's wrong with being false positive in coronavirus? It makes the recipient of the test feel like, you know, they have the virus and they need to, they need to isolate. Well, but what happens after the isolate? They think they've had it. So if they've had it and now they're feeling well and two weeks have gone by, and they're asymptomatic, they think that they're probably immune to the virus and they'll go out there and infect the rest of us. So false positive test is not a good finding. What about false negative? When you're actually, you have the virus, but the test shows that you're negative and you're asymptomatic. That means you're going to become asymptomatic spreader believing that you don't have the virus as you're shedding it all over the place and infecting many others. So neither false positive or false negative are good for a test. So the sensitivity of the test has to be high and specificity of the test has to be high. Sensitivity being able to actually find the, whether you have the virus and specificity is when you say you're positive, you actually are positive. One of my favorite websites is that run by Singapore School of Public Health. They have an amazing website with all sorts of reference and research materials that they've compounded. One of them is actually on the testing. They had found that there are currently 81 tests for uh, SARS coronavirus 2. Eight of them are non-commercial government or public agencies, and 73 are commercial. 
they're all being developed and pretty soon we'll have a, a whole range of tests available. The main test that is really used is the RT-PCR test. It stands for Reverse Transcriptase Polymerase Chain Reaction. This test with a swab determines a little tiny viral particle or the RNA of the virus. And then the, the process amplifies the RNA thousandfold to the point where we can actually detect it with some immunofluorescence. It's actually very interesting and very complicated. But suffice it to say, these tests are very sensitive. Now, the problem with these tests in general is that it requires us to sample a viral particle in our airway. The most common way is a long swab that goes all the way in the back of our nose to our nasopharynx. Yuck. The other one can go in, in the oropharynx. Gag. And of course, the best way is to do something called bronchoalveolar lavage and get the mucus from your lungs. That's almost—it's an invasive procedure, or you got to cough it up. The problem with swab testing is what if you have a low viral count and you don't get a really good swab of your nasopharynx and you didn't really catch any viral particles? Unlikely, but that, that can happen with bad swab technique. What if your viral infection is entirely in your lungs and not in your upper airway. That can also happen. So the tests still need to be interpreted carefully. We don't want to give people false sense of security that they're negative. So that's why the CDC's reluctance to roll out just any old test. Now, there's a lot of controversy originally why CDC didn't roll out the original World Health Organization test. Well, the study I found actually clarifies it very effectively. The this is their quote. The WHO recommended testing was for the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, RDRP. The U.S. CDC recommended nucleocapsid protein N gene. And the CDC recommended test was 43 times more sensitive. A study I found actually looked into some of the controversy that existed about which test U.S. CDC had chosen to use. The original test that was widespread through the world was World Health Organization recommended test, but CDC chose not to use it. Now, this study clarifies potentially why, and this is their quote. WHO recommended testing was for the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, RDRP. U.S. CDC recommended nucleocapsid protein N gene testing. The CDC recommended test was 43 times more sensitive. Clearly, that's a huge difference. We do not want to miss people who actually have coronavirus infection and give them a false negative result. That could be disastrous for community spread. It's best not to test individuals with a bad test and just have them all quarantine or socially isolate like we've been doing for two weeks than to give people hope that they're negative and then have this spread throughout the community. All right, on the brighter side of things... First of all, we're going to have survivors from this viral infection. And survivors are going to have precious plasma filled with antibodies that can be used to treat others who are severely ill. The other great bright thing is what's happening in the world of science, public health, and the commercial enterprise. We see this joint venture between public organizations, governments, commercial organizations, and companies together with scientists to create these new treatments. Look at all the treatments we've just discussed and all the testing that's being done. It's extraordinary what's happening out there. 
Science is on fire. And finally, I'd like to give a great big thank you to our first-line healthcare providers who are waiting there with limited equipment and supplies, creating systems in place, getting ready for all the sick patients that are going to start flooding into emergency departments, the intensive care units, and the operating rooms. We thank you for your service. And that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time.